production. Hello, A Life of Greatness listeners. I wanted to let you know about my private Facebook group called Live Your Life Greatly. It's a space for our community of like-minded people to give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. Search Live Your Life Greatly in Facebook groups. You can also join me on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg for daily inspiration, videos and behind-the-scenes footage. Search Sarah Grimberg on Instagram. Ursula Carlson is one of our greatest comedians, entertainers and truth-tellers. She catalogues her painful experiences of her childhood living with an abusive father and the violence and racism in apartheid South Africa. Ursula models how it's possible to have the scars of trauma and through deep self-work and discovery rise above them. These are just some of the places of pondering, sweeping perspective and raw wisdom a conversation with Ursula Carlson takes us. And she goes, Carlson, just remember there's no greater waste of time than regret. And that always stuck with me. You know, when someone says something, you're like, I'm going to remember this forever. If anything presents itself as an opportunity, I always hope that I'm ready and then I just go for it. I don't want to regret stuff later in life. I'm also good at saying no because I don't want to regret doing shit. You know, and it's sort of a fine balance, but I'm getting better at it as I'm getting older. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Ursula Carlson is one of our most celebrated comedians and her newest comedy show, It's Personal, is not to be missed. This is a very frank, honest, open and soul-bearing exchange punctuated with belly-aching humour. We discuss vulnerability, authenticity, suffering and attachment, topics that have touched most people and families. My hope is that Ursula's words awaken you to know there is light out there. May we walk together on this path of healing to find it. Ursula Carlson, we have been laughing already, but you grew up in South Africa in Johannesburg and now you are the wondrous podcaster, celebrity, comedian. I, I I have to stop you there. I don't feel like if someone says celebrity, I'm like, don't call me that because that it makes me feel like I'm at, at some point going to be at mar- married at first sight, <laughs> celebrity edition. Like the minute someone says celebrity, I think reality TV now. I don't, I don't identify as such. Uh, I'm just a person who happens to be on television and that your mum will stop in the supermarket while I'm trying to buy sanitary items to chat to me. Would you go on a reality TV show if you were asked? No, no, no. If you ever see me on a reality TV show, I want you to know that I've well and truly given up. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm not, like, I actually think that about myself, not that anyone has ever asked me to go on a reality TV show, but I think... I, I would never go on one of those shows. Yeah, but I think it's good to know. Know your limits before you get asked. Yes. You know, it's like it's like I know I'm never going to go skydiving or bungee jumping and I won't go on reality TV shows and I won't do shows on cruise ships. <laughs> I just know it's not for me. <laughs> it's like some people know or, or they're happy to explore. Yes. You know, they're like, oh, I'm really into anal. I'm like, I'm never going to find out. Well, what about Dancing with the um, Stars? No. <laughs> <laughs> that was a, such a fast no, Ursula. Nope. <laughs> it was quite high pitched as well. I I will get I will get going dancing with the stars if I can get a partner who can lift me like they're doing dirty dancing. And not a team event. I want one person to lift me and it has to be a woman. I wanna be I wanna be a lesbian couple on there. I don't want to dance with a dude. I don't want to, and I want that bitch to lift me like that. That's the only, and I'm not shedding for it, as is today. Hilarious. Hilarious. (laughs) Ursula, there is so much that I want to talk to you about, but let's start. Let's start from the beginning because you are obviously such a hilarious person, but I want to start off in South Africa, in Johannesburg, Tell us a bit about your upbringing. I know that it wasn't the easiest 
of years. No, no, it was pretty tough actually. I And I just want to say immediately right off the bat for other South Africans listening or South African enthusiasts, it wasn't Johannesburg. I grew up in a town called Benoni, which uh-huh. is about 30 minutes east of Johannesburg. Um, and it is, you know, sort of a more bogany area. <laughs> like if you meet anyone from there, you know you're ready. Uh, things could go either way. Um, but I loved it. I um, I grew up there and it was, Benoni means uh, son of my sorrows in Hebrew. Oh. Um, and that kind of sums up the town, you know. Um it's not the happiest joint on earth, but it had three lakes. Um, and they've tried to rebrand it as City of Lakes, but it's just never taken. <laughs> um, but it's really nice. And we lived there with my mum and we grew up really poor. Like I say, you get people who go, yeah, we were poor. And I'm like, were you? Um, I think when you grow up in extreme poverty, being poor is sort of the dream scenario. Yeah. You know, I remember I always say to people, poor people still dream. Like no one ever asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up because I think everyone in that environment was just like, we need to get through this shit today. Yeah. There was no dreaming of the future. There was no, who gives a shit? Let's just get through this week. That was kind of the vibe, you know. It was very, very poor and... um like we literally didn't know where our next meal, we didn't, like people go, we only had one car growing up. I'm like, bitch, we didn't have a fridge. We didn't have a fridge. We didn't have a TV. We didn't, people make references back to TV shows in the 80s and I have nothing, nothing. I'm only watching the Golden Girls now. <laughs> so, <laughs> and that's that's the truth. I, I just... I have nothing because we didn't have, we literally didn't even need electricity because we had nothing to run through it. You know, we used the lights and then sparingly so. Um, So, yeah, we were really poor. My dad was super abusive, drunk. He's dead now, so um, that's all right. Uh, But I, I learned a lot from my childhood. Like I think if I didn't have that childhood, I wouldn't be the person that I am today. Um, it's also taken a lot of therapy. I think if if you're a grown-ass adult and you're not in therapy or haven't spoken to a therapist, you need to get to it. Yes. Even if you think you're okay, you just check in. It's like yeah. it's like getting your prostate checked or going for a mammogram. You know, you sort of just need to have that guiding chat with someone and they go, you know what, this is a waste of your time and money. Don't bother coming back. But I bet you 100 bucks, that's not going to happen. When did you start having therapy? Uh, I was in high school. I got expelled uh, from boarding school because I punched a teacher and his wife. <laughs> they deserved it. Uh, if, I, if I had to go back. No, you know when you it do It seemed stuff, like quite a throwaway but, comment. I just punched a teacher and his wife, but I know you have a story around that. Yeah, like I, because I don't believe in regret. I don't live in regret yes. because it's no, you know, it's, it's a total waste. But when I was in boarding school, I was 15 years old and I had to look after the primary school hall and then on a Sunday morning because the teacher's house is sort of attached to the boarding school and uh, this teacher and his wife, she had nothing to do with the school, would shove their two primary school kids into the primary school hall and then the kids would just run around and go nuts, you know, primary school kids, yeah. what they do on a Sunday morning. So then his wife comes out. Now, please do remember this is in the 80s. Um, If you're listening to this and you are much younger, you probably won't understand what I'm going to say now. (laughs) The teacher's wife would come out with a wooden spoon and (laughs) smack all the kids for making a noise because we could still get smacks, you know, at school. So she would give all the kids a hiding except for her too. So then I came out and I said, hey, you know, it's fair enough if you're going to hit the kids because you want to sleep in and you're annoyed, but then you have to hit yours too. Yeah. And then she said, who do you think you're talking to? And she smacked me with a spoon. So I just clocked her in the head. And then she went in and got a husband and he came out and he tried to hit me and I hit him back. And yeah. I just went, this is bullshit. And then I got expelled. Uh, and so sort of part of the whole anger management Thing that I had to go through. I had to go see a therapist that the school ordered me to go see, the school board, and and I did. Her name was Mary, and she was my first therapist. I only saw her three or four times. She got hit by a bus in Johannesburg outside the high court. Um, but 
I mean, I had nothing to do with that. That was pretty tragic, actually, because I then, but then I knew the importance of seeing a therapist, even though I was yes. like raging hormones as a teenager. But that was sort of the turnaround for me, that getting expelled, going to school. Going to school with really good teachers and an amazing principal that I started there on the same day that he did. And I still had that really heightened fuck you, fuck everyone vibe as a teenager. And as a teenager, rebelling hard out against, you know, the situation that I was in. How did you know, Ursula, from such a young age, it seemed like you, yes, you had defiance in you, but you stood up for what you believed in, which, you know, there are so many situations where I think back to school or even now as an adult where people say things and I, you know, you walk away and you go, damn it, I wish I'd said that. Mm. Or you just close your mouth because you don't want to embarrass the person or you think of what you should have said after. I feel like you've always had that in you. And where did it come from? Unfortunately, because I had a, quite a violent upbringing, because my dad was such a violent dude and there was a lot of violence around that. Like he would have people come over. He was in the army. It was part of the Angolan war. So all of his mates were in the army and they were would go off to war and then come back. And so I, I honestly, I think there was a lot of guys, you know, dads, suffering from PTSD and complex PTSD and not knowing it and just coming back and fucking up their families and their their friends' families, you know. And, like, so unfortunately there was a lot of violence and a lot of abuse and I realised early on that no one's going to have my back like I will have my back. So I will always speak up and I will speak up for other people. If If I see bullying, I will call it out. I can be in a mall and see a guy being aggressive towards his wife or aggressive towards a staff member. And I'll go, dude, don't fucking do that. You're busy fucking up your life, her life. I'll just say it because I'm like, I I won't go too hard because I also know the consequences if they get home. Yes. You know, and you can lash out. But then I sort of almost feel like I just want to say something, plant a seed and go, hey, this situation is going to come back and haunt you because I know, like, my dad would go through these cycles of extreme abuse and then he would be so regretful and depressed about the abuse. But then it all, you know, so it was sort of in these waves and I saw it sort of eat him up. And, like, he died of cancer four years ago and I, like, I mourned his death because I thought, what a wasted life. He was such a talented guy and he threw it all away because he he didn't sort his shit out. He basically never went for therapy. He didn't recognise, here's a huge problem. We recognise it, but he didn't know what to do. Did he physically abuse you? Because I know you were six already when you left. So you must have been very young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. How did you cope with that? Well, that's what I I just said to a friend before. Like, even now in my life, like, and this is a hard thing for me. One of my therapists, um, when I left school after, you know, I started working for a bit and she would go, you learn more or I learned more from my dad about love and about family than I did from my mum who raised us with love yeah. and with family because you learn more from the stuff that hurts you or that damages you almost or I do definitely, because I look at it and I'm like, I don't want that. You learn from the stuff that hurts you or from the stuff that you go, this is not comfortable, I do not want this. And then you go, I'm not going to put that on other people because I know how that feels. So I don't want that. So everything in my life, even if I have a big decision or if, because I'm quite impulsive and I'm, you know, I can make a snap decision. Like I, I don't fuck around with, I can finish an entire house in 15 minutes. I go, that's nice. We'll have that, 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 and that. <laughs> Boom. Let's go. You know, yeah. I, people can for years go, I want to put a curtain up there, but I just haven't, I just haven't found anything <laughs> that I like. And you're like, it's been eight years. Like, <laughs> let's get shit in front of that window. <laughs> you know, like, so I can make snap decisions, but then some stuff I sort of have to sit with and I go, what would my dad do in this situation? Yeah. And I do the opposite. Yeah. Because you and your brother and your mother, you had to flee your dad when you were six. And sister. There was a sister, sister in there too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we took her with us. I mean, to have to flee someone, that is 
pretty hardcore. Yeah, no, he was, and and he um he was really drunk, and like I say, he was in the army, so armed to the teeth, you know, and he was looking for us with a gun up and down the street and just shooting randomly at people's houses and it was full on. He actually burned our house down that night. Oh, my God. But I think that sort of adds to me going, I'm not really materialistic and I can, like even when I immigrated to New Zealand, I just came with my clothes. I had a bag. That was it. And um, I had nothing, like, and... I can, if someone said to me today, you have to leave this house and you have to, I'll just take the passports and go, you know. And if I have my passport and my credit card, I don't give a shit because yeah. I, I feel like we've started over so much and come from nothing that I'm not sentimental about stuff. You know, people go, that was my great-grandfather's chair. I'm like, good on you, good on you. It smells like ass. <laughs> but it's so interesting because I don't know if you know, but in the Buddhist religion, the Buddha says a life of suffering is attachment, right? And so you've gone through all of that to actually reach this state of enlightened non-attachment that people will spend their whole lives not being able to do. And it's so interesting that you did go through, like you were talking about before, the trauma has helped you in an area that people that have masses of stuff would never be able to achieve. Yeah, well, I mean, there's there's pluses and minuses with everything. Like the benefit is I I can just, like I'm not attached to anything, but then I also emotionally struggle to connect with people. So, (laughs) you know, it's sort of (laughs) I don't connect to, I don't emotionally connect to things and I struggle with people too. Like people go, I'm going to go now. I'm like, I'm going to be sad for a week about this. Okay, good. (laughs) You know. I truly love the people in my life. I love the people that are close and I I'm so invested and connected to them. But I also know not to waste my energy on people who don't want to be in my life. Yes. Like only, like, or even if I've identified, like say someone comes into my life and I've identified this isn't a friendship that's going to last for years. I can see that. And then people go. How can you tell? You just know, like, you know, say, okay, perfect example. There was this um, person that I thought we are friends, right? And I thought I had an immediate connection with her. We sort of have, um, you know, as soon as I started talking to her, I was like, oh, my God, I I connect to you. She understood sort of my background, not completely, but, you know, sort of I could just vibe that we sort of have the same background. You know, we just click with someone. And so we've been friends for a couple of years and then um, she would keep running her mouth, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it. She would gossip about Mm. me or gossip about stuff that we had discussed. And I knew, oh, I can't trust her. So now what is the point of having a friend if you can't open up to that friend? Absolutely. So it it is a pointless friendship. It's nice and it's fun and we always have a laugh when we're together. But then I'm like, why would I keep pursue it Mm. when I know there's no fear. Like I'm not, I'm not going to phone her at four o'clock in the morning if there's a crisis. And if she rings me, sure I'll go help her, but it's not going to be a, you know, because I don't yes. trust her. So then she she'll keep saying to me, "We need to hang out." And and then I said to her, "Why? I don't have enough time. Like my time is precious. I don't get enough time to spend it with the people that I love and trust and that is close." I don't want to waste it. Mm. Trust is important. Yeah. So I sort of had to break up with her. I mean, obviously in your childhood you couldn't trust your dad for sure, but when did you feel that trust was so significant? Because I know it's like I've actually been reflecting on that a lot with my friendships at the moment and there are a lot of friends, a wider group. But when you think about how many people you could trust to tell your darkest of tales to and you know there would be absolutely, I think it's no judgment as well. They wouldn't judge you. They just yes. take you for what you are. Really, it's like a handful of people, but it's such a amazing trait to have as a person. And I, yeah. I hope to embody that. But why did that become so important to you? Well, I mean, you know, if, if you think about it, like 
trust and honesty, those two are sort of the same thing to me. Yes. And and I just got to a point where, and I think also it comes with age, where you go, you know what, all of that stuff that you say, like trust and honesty, and it it all comes from integrity. Like I don't want to be friends with someone who doesn't have integrity. Mm. Like what you think, what you feel and what you say is all the same, right? That's basically what it boils down to. And I just feel like how can I be friends with someone who doesn't have that, who I can't trust to A, be honest with me or B, trust that, you know, what what we share is just for us. And so I think you sort of, the benefit of getting a bit older and growing with those friendships and sort of whittling down the wider group is you get to a point where you're like, and sometimes it's people that you think, oh, I didn't think it was going to be you, but it is, you know, like yeah. these people will have your back, you know. I guess it's like now you'd say ride or die, bitches, but, you know, these people will have your back regardless. And like I say, no judgment. Mm. And just this morning I said to a friend of mine, I go, you are really shit at this thing that you're doing. And she goes, I know. And you know what? I'm glad that you say it because everyone else is blowing smoke up my ass. I go, no, you are fucking terrible at this one aspect of your life. But we can fix it. We just need to work on it for a bit, you know. And I want people to have the freedom to say that to me. Yes. And my friends do. Yeah. Like they will, <laughs> my friends go, we will keep you grounded, doll. Don't worry. I agree. It's so unbelievably important. Ursula, you grew up in apartheid South Africa as well that happened during your time there. Can you talk to, a, yeah. to us a bit about that? Because it's always been something that's fascinated me. And I know I'm Jewish and a lot of, Jewish people moved from, a lot from Joburg yeah. actually, they came during that time and settled in Australia or as you moved to New Zealand. I'd love to hear your yeah. story about that. Well, I mean, I I didn't go, um, right, because I always use that as a guide when I meet people, when they go, oh, yeah, we moved in 92 or 90. And I even say that on stage. I go, did you leave South Africa because you're a racist? And the amount of people who go, yeah. I'm absolutely blown away by it. But um, so I was in high school uh, in the early 90s and um, it was just, I I was telling my kids the other day how we have all these protesters of parliament and stuff, you know, because they dipshits. And um, I go, they need to introduce these people to the smell of pepper spray. And my daughter goes, what's pepper spray? I go, oh, it's the stuff that the police spray when you, you know, sort of, don't listen to them, but they also can't shoot you in the face. <laughs> so they pepper spray you. And she's like, how do you know? I go, oh, because we did a lot of sit-ins and protests and stuff during the apartheid years to free Nelson Mandela because what I, like people don't understand how controlling the government was. The government, South African government was super controlling. Like I didn't even know there was a 90 or 81 tour, rugby tour to New Zealand. They sent the Springbok team out, the rugby team, to come and play rugby against the All Blacks. And, of course, there was a big uproar. How can they allow this team to come and there's all these boycotts and blah, blah, blah. Uh, we didn't know about it. Of course, there was massive protests in New Zealand. Uh, people still talk about it today, like nearly every day, even right through this protest at Parliament, they were talking about the 81 protest, the rugby protests. And I was like, um, we didn't know. We didn't know. They came back and it was basically a failed tour. The whole thing was just complete balls up. Now, you better believe the government of the time wasn't going to turn to its people and go, hey, guys, you will not believe this shit, but other countries don't like what we're doing over here. Mm. So we didn't get all of that negative media. We didn't get any of that. We just got the, yeah, it was great. What about the Olympics? Because you weren't allowed in the Olympics, I remember. Yeah, I mean, we knew. We knew about the boycotts. Yeah. But we didn't know all of the negative, you know, the protests and all of that negative shit. Like very little of it came through to us. Like if you ever watched uh, Searching for Sugar Man, they show in there the, all the stuff that was banned by the old government, you know, that could sort of reveal to us what's going on in yeah. the outside world, basically. Everything was so restrictive and, you know, like they, it's like when you walk into the kitchen your parents are sort of whispering, you're like, what are you guys talking about? Nothing. That was what the government was really? like. It was very controlling. I started working for the newspaper in 1994 in South Africa and it was right in that hot potato, you know, era. And um, 
so then I was part of the transition from the old government to the new government within the media. And it was controlling. And to this day, it is still very controlling because now the new government is very controlling too because they don't want you to publish all of the, um, you know, corruption and the high crime rate because, of course, that all of that stuff affects tourism too. So um, it's just, it's a very fucking flawed country, you know, like I don't know what's going to fix it. It's such a shame because I spent about a month in South Africa a couple of years ago. I mean, we did the safari and all that. So you're seeing the very different side of, of the country. But we did spend yeah. quite a bit of time in Cape Town and it was beautiful, a little bit of time in Joburg. Yeah. But obviously there is a lot of violence there. And, yeah. I mean, you've got a story about one night when your neighbour told you that there was someone coming into your house. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This was just before we left, actually. This is because uh, I lived in a like a townhouse complex Um and they were like, I think, 15 units and then, you know, sort of built in a rectangle with a, or we would park our yeah. cars in the middle. And then um, my neighbour, oh, she was actually the caretaker. Her and her husband would take turns to watch all the cars and stuff because he used to break into our cars all the time and whatnot. So, but her bedroom window looked out over my little courtyard where you could um, go into the kitchen and she sent me a text message to say someone's climbing in through your kitchen window. And I was like, oh. And I played cricket that night, so I had the cricket bat. <laughs> so I just grabbed it, ran downstairs, and when I got down, they had bent up the burglar bars on the kitchen. The window was open, bent the burglar bars up, and the guy was busy climbing into the window. And I hit him on his hand. And I, I will never forget the look on his face because he was sort of trapped in the window, oh you know, God. sort of couldn't quickly hop out, couldn't because of the bent burglar bars. And um, he then got out and, and crawled under, the, there were four of them that crawled under the bigger cars like the Utes and the 4x4s. And by this stage, everyone had come out of their units um, because of the ruckus. And um, my mum also lived, she lived two units down from me. And then everyone was out with their cricket bats and their sticks and whatever. And I ran to my mum's unit and I go, because she had the biggest yard, she was on the corner. And I said, switch on all your outside lights, keep the doors locked. Um, someone just tried to break in. And then we waited for the cops. And the cops just roughed them up. They beat them up and then let them go. And they said, this is the best thing you can do, um, goes because they're going to just get let out of jail. Like they won't even get processed because I didn't do anything really. He said, so you want to you wanna hurt them and send them off. It was horrifying. It was absolutely horrifying. But on that night, my mum was like, why didn't you take the gun? Because we had guns in the safe at home. I had a 9mm 38 and a shotgun. And uh, I was like, oh, didn't even, didn't even cross my mind. That's how I knew Oscar Pistorius fucked up. Oh, yeah. But um, <laughs> I was like, because your first thing is like grab anything. Yes. To protect yourself. And yeah. it, it wasn't like, it never even crossed my mind to grab the gun. But then now looking back, I'm like, how different everything would have been in my life because it finished that night, mm. you know, it was done. Like I hit him on the hand, he got out, waited, and the cops beat him up and they left. You know, they sort of, the cops let them go. And then I think if I had shot him in my home, how that would have escalated and sort of basically affected my chance to move to New Zealand or anything. And and he would have been, what, dead or wounded or, you know. Yeah, it's a fucked up situation. I gave all the guns to the cops before we left. That story is unbelievable. And you, do you ever, like, reflect on your life and think about where you've come to where you are now? Would you ever have thought that you'd be standing on stage, one of the most sold-out events at comedy festivals around the world? Um, I do think about that. I think about my childhood and, you know, and I, I try and teach my kids too, you know, because they won't have that opportunity to yeah. know that kind of, you know. So I, I tell them all the time. I say there, there are people with less than, you know, and we sponsor kids um, locally. Like uh, you can you can sort of almost adopt a child financially. Yeah. So I 
we've we've adopted these kids. I said they have to be African in our community, um, and then whatever they need, like it's through an organisation, so they don't know it's us. We get updates on them, but they don't know it's us. And then they'll go, so-and-so, you know, this kid wants to go on science camp. We send the money for science camp. Oh, they need new shoes, new shoes, you know, whatever. Yes. Whatever they need for school to make sure that they have the best opportunity to rise up, you know. that's that's. And I say to my kids too, and I put those kids' photos because they send you photos like a little, almost like a little LinkedIn profile of your kid of what they like. And, and I put it on the fridge and I say, that's your that's your your um, sponsor sister. That's your sponsor brother. That's your you know, and I I want them to know. And the same like they go uh, on Christmas. So we celebrate Christmas on the twenty fourth, and then on the twenty fifth, I make them get in their Sunday best. Not that we ever go to church, but they they get dressed up, and we always I go cook at an old age home um, really? for all the you know like a, a council yeah. run old age home with my friends, and then. Uh, the kids sort of give out lollies and you know go chat to the oldies, yeah. and and they've been doing it now for three years with me, and it's such a great experience. Like the first year, they were like, "Why are we here with all these grandmas?" And then <laughs> I said to my daughter, who's the older one, I said, "All of these grandmas either don't have family or their family don't come get them." Yeah, I go, and there's a lot, lot more than just this room full of people, and she was just absolutely blown away that there's people out there who won't look after their own. Yeah. I said, and that's where we come in. We have to look after these people. I go, you don't have to stay in touch with them. You don't have to like you care for them in this moment because I also don't want them to go. Every old person or every person you know sort of is is amazing and their families are the shit because I always think my dad could have been one of these people yes. and not all old people are amazing people some of them are c-ts, you know and some c-ts get old it's so true. in that moment we care for these people yeah and we are doing this thing to help them and it's not you know you don't need to carry their life with you forever we are helping them today. It's like if you if you see someone on the motorway with a flat tire, of course you're going to pull over and help them, right? That's the decent thing to do. But you don't then take their details and carry their life with you forever. Yes. You help yeah. them in that moment and now we have, we've moved on. They don't need to keep carrying gratitude for you. They don't, like, it's happened, it's done. We've helped each other in this moment and now we, we're moving on. I'm not carrying your life, you're not carrying yeah, mine. Yeah, that's very important. Ursula, did you grow up in South Africa? I did. Uh, no. I did. <laughs> <laughs> this is going great. You're nailing it. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> with a certain religion or were you in touch with spirituality? Um, I, guess, I guess spirituality, yes. Um, I didn't really. My mum was very open. We could, we could choose where we wanted to go yeah um you know and and what we wanted to do and um you know so some Sundays I would go to temple some Sundays I go to happy clappy church some Sundays so we all just kind of did what we want because my mum grew up really religious because she grew up in foster care and her foster mum was the first female minister in South Africa wow and so it was very religious. And to this day, she's got like eight ministers in her family, um, you know, so very religious. So, and she got that slammed down her throat. Um, so she didn't want to do yeah. the same for us. But she still wanted to give us the opportunity to go, look, if you want to go, go. She didn't go to church, but she would organise. Like if I go, oh, yeah, I want to check out a synagogue. And she's like, oh, and then she would organise the you know, yes. like the little van would come and pick up the kids or whatever, and then we'd go. Um, so I got a healthy helping of everything and decided it wasn't for me. But the same, I did the same with my kids. I go, if you want to go to church, I'll take you. And they wanted to go and I took them. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and they were so quiet. They just sat there taking everything in. And I, I was actually surprised at how few people were in church. It was about 12 people in this and then uh, all old, and um, they just sat there taking everything in. They stood when they had to stand, and they, you know, and then afterwards 
the lady who sort of gave out the um, song sheet or whatever said to us, oh, come join us for a cup of tea. And I said to the kids, do you want to go for a cup of tea? Yeah. They've never had a cup of tea, of course, <laughs> tannins and all of that. And uh, I go, all right, so we go. And she gave them each a juice and they had, um, this is how small the congregations are getting. They just had one bunt cake, you know, like a coconut thing. Anyway, so they say to my son, who's four, do you want some cake? And, of course, he wanted the cake, would you believe it? And um, they each had a piece of cake and it's like this lemon coconut thing. And um, so they ate it and they were running around and chatting to all the old people and thinking they're reliving Christmas Day and then <laughs> went, went out to the car and I strapped them in their seats and I go, get in the car. I said, so how was that? Do you, do you think you like church? Do you, would you want to come again? And my daughter sort of thought for a minute and she goes, no, I think you can just buy the cake. It's all right. <laughs> That's all she took away from that, the cake. <laughs> I was like, all right. It's so good, though, that you give them, you at least take them there, that you're not putting your own perceptions onto what you think. You give them the opportunity to choose what they yeah. want, which is so important. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. You know, same thing. Like I, I wouldn't ram religion down their throat, but also I wouldn't ram non. You know, yes. it's it's their choices at the end of the day. I can guide them as much as I, but and I'll say to them, I'm not really an expert in this, but I, I'll find someone that, or I'll get Omar, you know, grandma to talk to you about it. Um, you know, but I, uh, I think it's so important to just let kids decide. Yes, or, they're going to anyway. Yeah, how many times as a kid? Were you in a situation where your mum goes, this is none of your business? And you're like, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and you're like, I'm going to make it all of my business. Like you're going to take in stuff anyway. You're going to, um, you know, learn from experiences. It's better to be guided through it. By your parents. Like sometimes they make friends with the biggest little assholes in school and I know the parents are assholes and I'm like, please, no, please, no. But then they make friends with them and you're like, you know what, I'd rather guide them through this experience with this little asshole um, you know, like my daughter made friends with a class bully. And I'm like, no, not that kid, not that kid. Yeah. And the parents are, you know, and I was like, oh, girl. But then it took her one term and she's like, I don't understand why she's like this. Why does she do this to people? Why does she? And I'm like, you know, this is called bullying. This yes. Is, and if you participate, you're a bully. Like, you know, I don't know what's worse, being bullied or being the bully. Oh, absolutely. You know, I know what's going to eat you later. Like you said, at least you're allowing them to be able to choose because a lot of parents wouldn't. They would just not allow play dates and they wouldn't let the friendship even kind of, you know, move further than the classroom. Yeah, but then it's still gonna it's still gonna happen. Well, that's it. You it know, is. Your kid will still be friends with that kid. So it's yeah. better that you sort of facilitate and sort of because you can guide it. You can go, oh, do you think what do you think about that? That's not great, eh? Spear tackling little kids. What do you think? <laughs> you know, whereas you can't. If you, if you if you ban it, you go, that's not happening on my watch, they're going to do it anyway. You just won't know better. You came into comedy very late compared to a lot of other comedians. How yeah, did that I even begin? Say, how dare you? <laughs> how did that begin? I, I was 32 when I started doing comedy and, yeah, that's basically retirement age almost. That's ancient. But I uh, used to work in advertising. Like, yeah. So I worked for the newspaper in South Africa. I was a designer for them. And um, then I moved to New Zealand and I started working for Ogilvy. Um, and I worked with this guy, Leon, who sat across from me. He was a, also a photo retoucher and then later a copywriter. But he um he used to he's from the UK and he was obsessed with comedy and he'd go, mate, you have to go do stand-up, you're so funny. And I'm like, no thanks, I'm not doing any of that shit. Like that's awful, just the thought of public speaking. He's like, no, please, please just go do it. Anyway, so uh we always had a laugh at work and he was really, you know, like I just I I I don't think I've ever had a shit job. I've done shit jobs, but I've never had a shit yeah. working environment. So anyway, so um, we just had such a great time. And when I left Ogilvy to go over to another agency, he got me a coffee maker and uh, this fake contract to go do an open mic night. 
and he made me sign it in front of everyone. So this is the Friday. The open mic was the Monday. He'd already booked it in. He had booked it in and he had booked seats for 70 of the people oh my he God. sent out a group email. Like he organised the whole thing. And then he goes, you have to sign it, you have to go do it. And um, I didn't want to look like a dick, like I wasn't a good sport because I had just moved to New Zealand like a couple of years yeah. before that. And so I'm like, all right, fine. So I signed it and I went on the Monday. It was a five-minute spot and I wrote four minutes of comedy thinking I'll give them one minute to laugh. It was super <laughs> arrogant. Uh, even now yeah. it's like, oh, it's a one-hour show. I'll write a two-hour show just in case. Um so anyway, I went, I did the show, had a few drinks after. Um, and then the next day I got a call from the owner of the club to say that I'm through to the next round. And I'm like, what? Um, and he goes, yeah, you, this is part of Raw Quest where they look for new talent every year during the comedy festival. And I said, oh, no, thank you. I'm not interested in any of that. I said, do you give it to someone who's interested in comedy? I said, oh, I just did it as a work thing. Um no, thanks. <laughs> and then he goes, you should come back. He goes, you were so funny. He says, um, and everyone was laughing. I go, mate, I knew 70 people in that audience. That's why they were laughing. I said, um, it was really stacked in my favour. And he goes, well, I was in the audience. I laughed. I don't know you. And, I thought, <laughs> hmm. and he goes, he goes, this is a great opportunity. And because I don't believe in missing opportunities and because I feel like that could lead to regret yeah. down the line. And I, I try and avoid that as much as possible. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go do it. And I went back. I didn't even tell Leon. I went back the second time, wrote a new five minutes this time and then um, did it and I went through to the final round and I won Best Newcomer that year. And then I tried to do as much comedy as I could while working full time. And then about a year after that, I had to give up my job because comedy was just completely taking over and I just sort of surrendered to it. I mean, a lot of comedians make fun of the everyday. I mean, I've interviewed a lot of yeah. comedians and, uh, like, that is a, a thing that they do. But f I don't know what it is with you. You make it extra hysterical. And I remember seeing you at the comedy festival and there were thousands of people watching in Melbourne. You were talking, it was a few years ago, it was pre-COVID and you were talking about when you need to go to the bathroom and the closer you get to the toilet, it's like your bladder knows that it's coming. And I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, who doesn't have that? It's the most relatable thing ever. And I feel that you just pick these moments that everyone's like, yup, that is so me. And that's what makes it so hysterical. Yeah, I think it's sort of, you know, all the stuff that happens to us when we are alone and we think we are the only, have you ever had that scenario where you're like, I'm the only one that has ever, this has ever happened to? <laughs> um, and then you hear someone else talk about it and you just feel like, oh my, hang on, is this happening to everyone? It's like you are just blown away. So I try and find those moments, um, you know, and sort of go as, you know, we, we try and teach our kids, you are special, you are unique, you are every, but you know what? We are special and unique exactly like everyone exactly. else. We all have a, even, you know, I talk to friends of mine and I think that sort of puts my childhood in a different light for me too. You know, you can have all the therapy in the world, but if you don't connect to people, I don't think you can ever heal from yeah. stuff. And I've, I've got friends who grew up super privileged. Like they were, you know, those people who get a brand new car for their 16th birthday. Yeah. And, you know, go uh, like, yeah, so for my 10th birthday, we were at Disneyland. And I'm like, who the fuck goes to <laughs> Disneyland? You know, like like yes. that. Like super, you know, like not just wealthy, like, a, you know, but you listen to them and they're like, uh, they're still damaged from mm. their childhood. Like I think it's near impossible to not be damaged from your childhood. And absolutely. my mum always says it takes your entire adulthood to get over your childhood. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I mean, when you started doing comedy and obviously now this is the thing that you do, there must be a sense of purpose and meaning that you found in that. Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky. Like I get to talk to heaps of people and so in every show that I do, I try and hide a little message like don't be an asshole or don't yeah. be a bully. Like 
my Netflix show, um, Overqualified Loser, is basically about people not not putting people online. You know, like, and and the whole idea for the show was during the Olympics. I was reading an article about this woman who had overcome all these obstacles and everything that had happened, and her dad had died, and like three days before her performance at the Olympics and she won this gold and she, like, just this whole piece about her and all the stuff that she had overcome. And then I clicked on the comment section and it's this Australian lady and people were going, yeah, good on her, but fuck, what a dog. And then everyone's talking about how, how unattractive she is. Really? And I was like, this woman spent her entire life training and just being amazing and just all of the shit that has happened to her and she every time she would rise up, rise up, rise up and meet it. And here these people on Facebook going, yeah, tough shit, she's ugly. And I'm like, okay, a couple of things. I had to look at their profiles. They're not beautiful people. <laughs> We're not talking stunning people here. Like if you're going to comment on someone's looks, you better be fucking hot, Right. <laughs> They, there was no one in there that I recognised, no one that I thought, oh, yeah, I've seen your work, yeah. nothing, nothing, you know, you're, you're below average as a human being and yet here you are shitting on someone's porch that you don't know, Yeah, you know, but just because aesthetically she doesn't please your eye. But then I'm like, none of these people make themselves. Like if she had made herself, she would be stunningly beautiful, I'm sure you know, or whatever, whatever look she wants to go for. She would, no one chooses this. Yeah. It's like, you know, you don't choose how you're born or the religion or your childhood or we would all make better fucking decisions. Mm. It goes back to that saying, which I'm massively paraphrasing here, but the whole idea of if you're not in the arena doing the same thing, what do you have to comment about someone? I mean, you haven't even tried to do what they're doing, so give it a rest. And I wonder... For you, obviously being in the public eye and no one who isn't in the public eye would say hasn't had bullying, how do you deal with that? Has there been times where it has really gotten to you? Yeah, I mean, uh, it does sometimes get to me. Like I feel like I'm a little more uh, war-hardened now, you know, sort yeah. of trod at the path, of, you know, so sort of I can take it a bit and, also, a lot of times I, I kind of look, at, again, I look at their profiles and I'm like, you shouldn't be here, you know, like you are damaged, damaged individual. Um, and and now, nine out of ten times, I'm like, whatever, and I just block them or, you know, I just I wipe my ass with them, really. I, I don't give a shit. And every, every other time, you know, that one out of ten, I'm like, why are you this person? Or, you know, and now they go, this is so not funny. I'm like, thank you so much. Oh, my God. Um, I'll immediately change careers, you know. <laughs> or <laughs> sometimes like this one guy, um, he said, so, and this was a few years ago on one of my clips, he, he was talking about how gay people aren't funny and da, da, da. And then he highlighted all the gay comics that he didn't find funny. And um the stuff that I talked about that he thinks is unnecessary. Like, why do you have to talk about being a lesbian? Why do you bring up your wife? Why do you bring up your kid? Why do you have? And then I I posted under his comment, uh, Chris Rock talking about his family, um, Dave Chappelle talking about his family, Wanda, you know, like all these comics, um, Jim Gaffigan, uh, and I'm like, they're all amazing comics and all they talk about is their lives and they I go, we talk about what we live. Of course. You absolute fucking munter. And then he must have obviously, it, full respect to him, he didn't delete his comment because sometimes that's what they do. They delete their comments. And he had about, there was about 700 comments just trashing him, you know. And then he came back and he wrote on there and he goes, I stand corrected. I, I you know, he goes, it literally never even crossed my mind. I didn't didn't think about it like that. Like that is your life. That is your family. I thought, you know, in my stupid approach, gay people talking about gay people, he goes, but you're just talking about your people. So then he apologised yeah. and he, wow. he tagged. He, and he apologised to all those gay comics too. Um, 
Do you think there'd ever be a point where you would not look at the comments? I know I've spoken to quite a few. I remember talking to Olivia Newton-John and she was saying that early in her career she just stopped, like, looking at comments because obviously that was way before social media, but even, like, reviews and things like that because she said the good praise is just as bad as the the negative praise. And I wonder, for you, would you just not look at all or that might not be for you? That's not, uh, I don't think I will, I like, because I interact with people. Yes, I talk yes. to people. And that, to me, that's the magic of this job. Yeah. I think it's it's part of the privilege that we have is to have that voice and that people reach out to us. I've met amazing people. Um, I've, you know, I've been through things with people, extreme trauma in their life where, you know, sort of I start talking to them before the trauma happens and then they have trauma and then we keep talking and it's like you're part of someone's life and it's an absolute privilege and they sort of are part of yours in a way. And this is what makes us human. Like Mm. this is, this is our thing, you know, but as for reviews, like I don't, I don't allow reviewers. I say no reviewers because I don't use the bad or the good. Like I wouldn't use your five star review, but I also don't give a shit if it's good or bad. I don't like reviewers mean nothing to me. These are people, and I, maybe it's because I used to work at the newspaper. The people we send out to do the reviews are the dumb shits who can't cover the crime. <laughs> you know, it's like he's not very good at detail. Send him to go and do a review. You know, like that's literally how I would allocate jobs at the paper. The dumb shits are going for the reviews. It's like you're not sending the Diane Sawyers out to go watch yes. as you know a nine thirty show in a basement bar. You know, you're not you're not getting the creme de la creme of journalistic you know prowess here. You're getting a fuckwit who can't do a, a review on a car. So um, I don't really give a shit about reviews. But as for one-on-one contact, when people talk to me, and I always say, and, and I say this to people who give me shit on my pages, I'm like, or I have no tolerance for racism, bigotry, sexism, any of that shit, not in my house. Yeah. And I say that when people say anything, I go, you're in my house now. When you come onto my page, that's like you're walking into my house. Mm. And talking shit about my friends. So if someone comes in and they say anything about any of my friends or any, you know, or anyone on my page, I will immediately shut that shit down. I'm like, you're in my house now. But then for the same token, if you come in and you're bringing positive energy and positive positivity, why would you not take that? Yes, absolutely. You know, and there's a shit ton more positive than there is negative. Yeah. But also if, if it tips over and it's more negative, then, then I need to look at me. Mm. You know, why is it like if one person talks shit about you, that's their opinion, you know, and that's the lowest form of human, you know, yeah. interaction is opinions. Everyone's got, it's like an asshole. Everyone's got one. But then if the majority of people talk shit about you, you have to look at yourself. Mm. You have to go, okay, obviously something ain't right here. I need to fix it. Do you ever get nervous now going on stage? All the time. Really? Every single time. Yeah, I get I get a lot of stage fright. And it makes me nervous if I don't get nervous, then I get really nervous. So <laughs> it's always there. And I think I think that's like I, I embrace it now. I'm happy for that nervousness. Yeah. It keeps me on my toes. Uh, keeps me so bad gigs. I never drink <laughs> because I'm I'm too scared I'm gonna stuff up on stage. Um you know I'm just I I am nervous. I think if you're nervous, it's because you're scared you're going to lose something, yeah. right? That's when you get nervous. And if you're nervous that you're going to lose your career, it's just because it, it means a lot something to me. to you, yeah. Yeah, so I appreciate I appreciate the nerves. But, yeah, I get really nervous. Have you ever suffered anxiety or anything like that? Because I always think if you were a comedian and you had panic attacks, I mean, it would be so nerve-wracking going on stage thinking, imagine if that happened to me. Has that ever been something that you've experienced in your life? Yeah, I get um, panic attacks and anxiety um, because I suffer from complex PTSD. And so that's always sort of, but because I go to therapy, um, I sort of, I manage it. Yeah. And and the my work isn't the stuff that gives me anxiety and panic attacks. Yeah. So that, that never 
eclipsed yeah. me over the side on that in that aspect. Of course, I get nervous, but it's not the same. Like if you, if you get anxiety and if you get panic attacks, you know when it's coming. Yeah. Um, you know, sort of it, it's a it's an escalation. But like I say, work-wise, it doesn't happen to me. Um, and I've, I've, I've managed it and, and I can, you know, like I say, through a good therapist, you kind of, I know when it's coming and I know when I need to take time out to de-escalate and to just assess. Yeah. And then it doesn't happen. You don't have any pictures of your kids on social media or your partner. And I've actually chosen to always do the same thing. So I don't have pictures of my private life. It's just just a thing that actually um, I saw someone that I really admire do in my early years and I thought like that's... Is it me? Was it, it was me? you. It was you. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, now now I've been busted. Nah. Um, and I thought yeah. to myself, I want to be known for my job and it doesn't need to be everything else. And I wonder why yeah. you chose to do that. Well, um, I guess uh, I'm lucky because I got to the game late and I know to respect other people's privacy. Yeah. Uh, my partner is really um, shy. Uh, and so it just never, we just thought, oh, yeah, it just never came up. Then as soon as our daughter was born, on that day we were still at the hospital um, and I got a call from, like, you know, a magazine going, oh, we want to pop around and come take some photos. I'm like, no, mm. no, thanks. Uh, and, and they go, okay, what's her name? Like, can you give us the stats, you know, like wait. And I went, no, I don't, don't feel comfortable doing that. don't want to do that. And then um, I was still, like, about five minutes later, my wife's phone rang cell phone rang and she picked it up and um, it was them going, hi, we just spoke to Ursh and she said you will give us the stats. She's not sure of it, of the baby. What's her name again? And then she just pointed to the phone and I took it. I went, you little fuck. And they got her phone number of the company's register wow. in New Zealand and found her and just thought I wouldn't be in the room, took a chance or whatever, trying to bamboozle it out of it so it was never like I knew I wasn't going to post any photos because I never post anything about my family online but as soon as that happened I thought oh they really want to know now I need to protect that yeah. I won't so I've never even revealed my kids names ever yeah. so um I just think and now you know like my son is very shy and my daughter is very out there. She is super creative. She's super like, she's like, why can't I be, can I be in your photo, like in a photo shoot with you? I'm like, no. I said, wait till you're 16. And if you go, I really want people yes. to know who I am. I will phone Woman's Day and we will have a shoot together. Yeah. I said, but up until that point, why don't we keep it private? Like, you know, just yeah. keep it private. And and I just think it's amazing. And even if I'm out and people go, can I have a photo? I go, please don't have my kids in the background. Yeah. Like I just move them out. And, you know, I once we were at a playground and I was in the bumping cars with the kids and um, people were taking photos. And when we got out, I said, hi, can I ask you a favour? I'll have a photo with you, but please delete those photos yeah. of me and my kids. And the, the mom, because it was teenagers, the mom was like, Delete those photos. <laughs> she goes, we will never post them because people post them and then tag me in yeah. it. And it just, and then I had a photo with them and it was all good. And it's like, I just, and now, and, and you know, when, when, um, if you type in Google, you can see, yes. and I get Google alerts as to what people look for about me. And the, the, they always go, Ishla Carlson wife, Ishla Carlson baby, Ishla Carlson husband, Ishla Carlson. I'm like, why do you want and Ursula Carlson income? Husband. Like, all these things that would be rude to ask someone straight. I know, there's always the husband. <laughs> the, all this stuff that would be rude to ask someone yeah. at a party. So what what do you earn a year? Like, what the, what's wrong with you? It's so funny that you say that because my friend literally called me yesterday and she said, Hey, do you know what people Google about you? I can see. And I said, What? She's like Sarah Grimberg age, Sarah Grimberg husband. Sarah Grimberg married. I'm like. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's insane. Yeah, if you type in your name, it comes up with the stuff yes. that people ask most. 
And it's just great. And you're like, why do people want to know this stuff? I'm going to look it up right now so I can tell it because I haven't done this in a while. Yes, tell me. But I always think that is so funny, the stuff that people look up. Okay, Ursula Carlson. Okay, Ursula Carlson. Oh, that's pretty good. Ursula Carlson Wife, Ursula Carlson Auckland, Ursula Carlson Podcast, Shows, Netflix, Net Worth, Hamilton <laughs> Partner. Net Worth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, I think my accountant's been on here. Don't try to take shortcuts, mate. <laughs> what is the best advice that you have ever been given? Uh, I was 16 years old. Uh, I was in a homeroom with a teacher that I only now know was just a fill-in for one term. She was only ever a teacher for one term. And I was being a shit. And then she helped me after class and she goes, Carlson, just remember there's no greater waste of time than regret. Yeah. And that always stuck with me. Like, you know, when someone says something, Mm. you're like, I'm going to remember this forever. And and I've always given, like, if anything presents itself as an opportunity, I I always hope that I'm ready. Yes. And then I just go for it because I just, I don't want to regret stuff later in life. I'm also good at saying no because I don't want to regret yeah. doing shit. Yeah, that's powerful. You know, and it's sort of a fine balance, but I'm getting better at it as I'm getting older. What's the lesson that has taken you the longest to learn? Just because I can doesn't mean I should. Yeah. Yeah, that's powerful. I know that you're not a religious or spiritual person so much, but do you have a favourite saying or prayer or anything that you might say to your kids? Yeah, I have this mantra on my head all the time, the universe applauds action, not thought. Yes. I was talking about that the other day. You can think about it for years and never do shit. But unless you're doing it, you're not getting the applause. But yeah. And I, I believe in that. I believe if you're doing the right thing, the right doors will open. 100%. Like if you're, if you're doing sh- and you're like nothing is working, nothing, like my personal life is falling apart, my career is falling apart, what are you doing wrong? You need to be calm and go, why are you keep hammering at the wrong fucking, like there's a door, stop yeah. hammering the wall down. Yeah. It's incredible, isn't it? Because, I mean, I talk about this a bit, but I was Hamish and Andy's EP for four years and I decided, you know, the podcast getting bigger and there's things I want to do to grow my brand. And so I left them last year and I'm in that same belief. As soon as you also close doors and you move forward in the area that you want to, you put in the hard work, then doors will open. It has just been one door after the next. And it happened as soon as I closed that other door and put the action in. It's actually unbelievable to see it happen in your life. Yeah. We go, holy hell. Like when I left advertising, when I say I left, I got made redundant, but because my creative director was so amazing, he's like, you know, this comedy thing, what, what's happening here? He goes, you have to choose. It's either comedy or advertising. Is this because you can't do both by yes. the looks of it because you're really, you're giving 100% to both and you don't have 200%. And, uh, you know, I'm also the firm belief you can't ride two horses with one ass, yeah. you know, so you've got to make a decision, back one. And then as soon as as soon as I got made redundant, it was like the world went, oh, you're available. Yeah. Not a worry, mate. We'll take care of it. And I have, honestly, touch wood, I have not been wanting for work. Like someone said to me last week, um, I was filming, haven't been paying attention. They go, who's your agent? I go, I don't have one. And you know what? I haven't needed one because work just comes. I do one job and as long as you don't fuck up, you're sober and respectful and polite to everyone on board and you do the best, another one opens. It's like it's this whole ripple effect. You know, and then you get to a point where like like Russell Howard goes, when you're at the top of your game and you look around, you go, oh, there's no assholes here. Yeah. No, because they drop off on the sides because the doors start closing for them. It's so true. So true. Yeah. What's your greatest hope for society today? God, I, I don't know. After these two years, the hope has sort of waned a bit for society. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know what? Acceptance. Yeah. I don't, like it used to be understanding. I wanted people to understand why it's important 
for people to love who they want to love and I wanted people to understand why it's important to follow your dreams and now I don't I don't expect understanding anymore I don't I don't think that's on the table anymore just acceptance I want you to if you don't understand something just go I don't understand like I don't yes. understand um why trans lives matter I'm just going to accept that it does yeah. I don't understand why why um love is love I'm just going to accept that it does that's all I want. You don't need to understand it. Like sometimes if you look at a scenario and go, the amount of times people will say to me, I just don't get it. Okay. Then the rest should be an internal monologue. You don't need to put whatever comes after that because usually when people say, well, I just don't get it, you're going to hear some bullshit right after that. Yeah. I don't understand why gay people are, shut the fuck up. You don't need to understand. Not everything in this world, like, you're obviously not very bright or just accept it. Yes. Just accept that this is something that is beyond you. I don't look at a doctor and go, if I don't understand what you're doing, whatever you're doing is not right. Yeah. No, I just go, this is above my fucking pay rate. Yes. I don't understand it. Power to you. I accept whatever you do. You know, yeah. like if, if I go through chemotherapy, I don't go, hang on, hang on, what exactly is happening here? No, I have to accept that these people, and it comes down to trust and acceptance, these people mm. are doing the best for me. Yeah. You just have to lean into that, you know? Absolutely. Just acceptance. What is a life of greatness to you? Not damaging people. Mm. And, you know, like I think if you can go through, because at the end of the day, wealth, um, you know, how high up in your career you got. None of that shit matters if you were damaging people on the way. Mm. I think true greatness is if you get to the end of your life and you go, I didn't damage too many because I think it's inevitable to damage some. Yeah. But I think if you get to the end and you're like, I didn't damage too many, I didn't fuck up too hard, that is greatness. You are a wise, wise woman. Thank you so much. Because I'm old, old, Sarah. <laughs> For your time today, and obviously you are unbelievably hysterical, so I appreciate the conversation so much. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to go Google your age right now. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to hear more from Ursula Carlson, her new podcast launches today, That's Enough Already, which is available now on Listener. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.